your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 9, and we're going to look at chapters 9 and 10. They go together. They're short chapters. And uh, the same thing, same theme, subject. God's glory departs from the temple. God's glory departs from the temple. This is the nitty-gritty of Ezekiel's message. And it must have broken his heart to have to tell the people. You know, it, it, and, and you know, it, it's, it's no fun being the bearer of bad news. When we were reading Lamentations, when we were studying Lamentations, we saw how thoroughly the Lord poured out His fury on His people. Jeremiah saw it all. He was an eyewitness to it. He saw the destruction of Jerusalem, and he saw what Ezekiel, he saw what he had predicted come to pass. Jeremiah saw the whole thing being fulfilled. Here in chapter 9, the Shekinah glory prepares to leave the temple at Jerusalem. The Shekinah glory is a visible manifestation of God's presence. And even though the word isn't found in the Bible, it's found often in later Jewish writings. And even though the word isn't found in the Bible, like I say, it's, it's, it's been found in, in later Jewish writings. It refers to the times when God showed himself visibly, like he did on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 through 18. And when he showed himself in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies and in Solomon's temple. Listen to what it says again in, in, uh, in Ezekiel 24, 9 through 18. It says, Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. That is, they saw some sort of visible manifestation. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. So they saw God and they ate and they drank. The Shekinah glory was a glowing cloud that rested above the altar at the place of worship. And it lit up the room. When the Babylonians destroyed the temple, the Shekinah glory was gone. There was no Shekinah in the temples that were rebuilt later under Zerubbabel and Herod. But God is merciful. We, you know, thank God that he doesn't get in a grouchy or irritated mood. He doesn't give up on people. God is long-suffering, and he's not willing that any should perish. The vision of the disgusting, idolatrous practice that we saw last week in chapter 8 closes with an, a, 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 a notice of judgment in verse 18 that's partially repeated at the end of this vision in here in, in verse 10. Chapter 9 gives the details of the coming judgment. First, the main characters are introduced to us. The guards who would carry out the slaughter and then the man in white linen who would protect God's faithful in verses 1 and 2. Then there's a prediction of the departure of God's glory in, in here in chapter 9, verse 3a, that is the first part of, of, chap, of verse 3. Then it's followed by instructions to the man in the white linen to mark the innocent. In verse 3b, the second part of verse 3 through verse 4. And then the guards to slaughter the guilty in, in verse 5 through 7a, the first part of verse 7. So let's begin now in chapter 9 with verses 1 and 2. And it says, Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. 
And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood before the bronze altar. So it says here in verse 1 that Ezekiel heard a loud voice. So it seems like it was God's voice that he heard calling for those in charge of punishing the city, these six men that come with their weapons. These six men are believed to be angels. Some say they might be the Babylonian armies that came and destroyed Jerusalem. But it seems that most believe them to be angels, those who were in charge of the city of Jerusalem, who sometimes had the authority to administer discipline. Even though they were called men, they weren't truly human beings. They were divine messengers or angels. Now, it wasn't uncommon for angels to be called men in Scripture. God personally called these messengers to chasten, chasten his people like he promised in chapter 8, verse 18. These angels came to carry out God's judgment and wrath. And verse 2 says, at God's command, six men came from the upper gate. This was the same area where Ezekiel had seen the sun worshipers in chapter 8, verse 16, and the image of jealousy in chapter 8, verse 5. It says in verse 1 that each man had a deadly weapon or a battle axe, according to verse 3, in his hand. Now, with these men was a seventh man. He was dressed in white linen like, like that of a priest. He was a mysterious messenger of God. Sometimes he's described as the angel of the Lord, but at other times as one sent by God. But God used this messenger to appear to human beings who otherwise wouldn't be able to see him and live. We see that in Exodus 33, verse 20. The angel of the Lord performed tasks associated with God. He would perform tasks like revelation, deliverance, destruction. But he can be spoken of as distinct from God. He wasn't God. He was, he was separate or different than God. He had a scribe's writing kit, it says, or a writer's inkhorn with him. Now, this writing kit was usually made from an animal horn. Professional scribes usually carried this kind of, of, of equipment. In ancient cities, the scribes would register the cities and identify the aliens. So after entering the city, these seven messengers of judgment took their positions. And it says in verse 2, they stood beside the bronze altar. Now seven was the number that was symbolic of completeness. God completed creation on the seventh day. He completed it. Seven was the number, like I said, of completion. And suggested after they were finishing, uh, finishing carrying out God's judgment, it would be final. Look at verses 3 through 6. Now the glory of the, of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub, where it had been, to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen, who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done in it, within it. To the others, he said, in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. 
Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders or the leaders who were before the temple. So here we see that God commanded that we see that the glory of God of Israel, it says, rose up between the cherubim, that is above the mercy seat where it had rested, and moved to the entrance of the temple, according to verse 3. <clears throat> the glory was a sign of the presence of God. And this was the first stage of God's departure that is leaving the temple. Before the executioners started carrying out their assignment that God gave them, all right, they, they were, you know, they, they had this, this pen and they were commanded to go, this, this again, this, this writer's case, this, this inkhorn. They were assigned by God to go through the city and mark the people, but the people who grieved because of the sins of the city. The days of Ezekiel were times of judgment for Israel. And verse 4 says, certain people were to be marked who would escape God's judgment. Now, they would be marked in a special way on their forehead, it says here in these verses. God separates the righteous from the wicked. It's something that God has always done. The wicked and the righteous, they might live side by side for a while. Jesus talked about the tares and the wheat, you know, living together in the church. But sooner or later, the time is going to come when they will be separated. And God knows who the wicked are, and he knows who the righteous are. And God will not make any mistakes separating the righteous from the wicked. Now, there were two qualifications that were laid down by God for those who were to be marked. God said, mark those who sigh and cry. That is, those who sigh and cry for the iniquity of the land. Sighing speaks of the inward concern of people. It's the heart grieving over the sin in the land. The crying is the outward complaint of the people about the sins in the land. So it's important that both the sign and the crying were present in these people. Now, a lot of people cry outwardly. And they might show an outward grief of the sins, but inwardly, they might not sigh. Those who cry but don't sigh are hypocrites. But those who sigh but don't cry are cowards. Those who sigh need to cry out against evil. And they need to take a strong stand against it. And that should speak to the church today. Those who have the mark will be protected from the judgment of God. The righteous might feel out of place in the land like Christians today. If we're living for God and we're doing what God has called us to do, we are going to feel out of place. We're going to feel out of place in society, in the land. They might be despised, these people who were marked by God. And as Christians, they might be despised by pretty much everybody. But God thinks differently about those who cry and sigh over the sins of the land. God favors the righteous and he will protect them from their enemies. God favors the righteous and he will protect them from his judgment. Think about this. If the Lord Jesus was to walk into this sanctuary right now 
and begin marking people, would you be anxious as you saw him begin to mark people, pass over others before he got to you? Would you have the confidence? I'm not worried about it. I know I'm going to get his mark. I know I'm going to be one of his people. Because that's seriously something to think about. And I just think of the rapture of the church. Am I so sure that when the rapture of the church takes place, I'm going to be in that number? Because when I sat this morning, I just really mulled over that. I go, I started to think, Lord, what, you know, you know, I just be, my mind just started to go, Lord, will I go in that number? You know, and it's something that we need to be sure about. Would we, if he came through right now and began to mark those who were his, are we sure that we would get the mark? It doesn't matter how how dark the days are. God has always had his faithful few who obeyed his will and trusted him for deliverance. And Ezekiel is one of those. The marking of the people will also be something done in the end times. We see it in Revelation, the mark of the beast. Believers today are marked by the Holy Spirit and should be marked by holy lives that glorify Jesus Christ. Now, these men with the deadly weapons were told to follow the messengers with the writer's inkhorn. And they were to kill those who didn't have the mark, according to verse 5. Now, this is similar to the Passover. If you remember at the Passover, the house that wasn't marked with the blood of the sacrificed lamb on his doorpost would be visited by an angel of death and they'd receive God's judgment. And it says here that old men, young men, the girls, the women, the children were to be killed if they didn't have the mark. God's judgment upon the guilty, it wasn't partial. He didn't have favorites. He judged fairly. God doesn't have favorites. He doesn't give any free passes when it comes to his righteous judgment. His justice is served by the fact that no one who is guilty will be spared, according to verse 5 and 6. Judgment didn't just include God's own people. Notice what it says at verse 6. He said, begin at my sanctuary. Think about that. He says, start in my house. It seems like a strange order. But you see, it was the idolatry in the temple that had stirred up God's anger. And often in Scripture, you see God sending judgment, but it wasn't because unbelievers have sinned. It was because His own people disobeyed His law. Remember twice, Abraham brought judgment on innocent Gentiles because he lied about his wife. Aaron, the high priest, led Israel into idolatry, and 3,000 people were killed. David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he murdered her husband Uriah, and his sins brought years of trouble to his family and to the nation. A crew of Gentile sailors almost drowned because of Jonah's disobedience to God. You see, God's people are to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That's what we're called to be. You know, if there was more salt in this world, there would be less decay. And more light would mean less darkness. Our good works glorify the Lord. But our sins, our sins bring on His discipline. 
Peter warns believers in 1 Peter 4, 17, judgment must begin at the house of God. So it says they began at God's house. They began at the sanctuary. And he said, begin by killing the 70 elders. 70 of the church leaders. A warning that we need to pay attention to today because our Lord is coming. And it's, he's getting closer and closer every day. And those who are leaders, they're not exempt from the holy standard of God's word. And they're even more responsible. And they'll experience even the greater judgment for leading others astray. Jesus said in Luke 12, 48, For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. The more we know, the more we're responsible for what we know. Jesus is stating a general principle that the more we have from God, the greater our accountability before God will be. Verses 7 through 11. Then he said to them, Defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And they went out and killed in the city. So it was that while they were killing them, I was left alone and I fell on my face and cried out and said, Ah, oh, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. And the land is full of bloodshed, and the city full of perversity. For they say, The Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. And as for me also, my eye will neither spare, nor will I have pity, but I will recompense their deeds on their own heads. Just then the man clothed with linen, who had the inkhorn at his side, reported back and said, I have done as you have commanded. Normally, a dead body wouldn't be allowed in the sanctuary because it was considered to be unclean. But the temple was already defiled by the worshipers, remember, back in chapter 8. So the messengers were told to defile the temple and to fill the courts with the dead, according to verse 7. Justice was more important than the rituals they were going through in church. Listen to Malachi chapter 1, verse 10. He said, how I wish, God spoke and said, how I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that these worthless sacrifices couldn't be offered. God says, I'm not pleased with you, said the Lord of heaven's army, and I will not accept your offerings. God said, I'd rather you close the doors to the temple. Can you imagine? Close the doors to the church. I, I'm sick of what you're bringing. I, I don't want it. I don't accept your phony offerings. Starting at the sanctuary, the execution spread all through the rest of the city, according to verse 7, so that Ezekiel was the only one left in the temple. It broke Ezekiel's heart to see what was happening. And verse 8 shows he begged for mercy, showing how deeply he felt for the needs of the people. Even though Ezekiel was tough and he was outspoken, he had a compassionate heart for the people, according to verse 8. And this vision of God's merciless justice, uh, judgment and death really got to Ezekiel. And it really stirred up his emotions. God responded to Ezekiel's pleading for mercy. 
And God reminded him that there was a righteous and reasonable reason for the punishment that he was witnessing. You see, God never acts randomly. He never does anything without a cause. Their sin, according to verse 9, literally their wickedness was great. It was exceedingly great. The land was filled with violence. The land was filled with bloodshed. The city was filled with injustice. So there wouldn't be any mercy in his judgment. And the last part of the vision of judgment and God's departure from the temple included a message of hope that promised a remnant would be restored in, verse, in chapter 11 later on. The second vision of the judgment of apostate worshipers are closed with the announcement from the man in white linen in verse 11. He says, Lord, I have done as you have commanded me. Now, in chapter 10, we continue Ezekiel's vision of God's departing glory. God has supernaturally transported Ezekiel to Jerusalem to let him see the, these things that were going, and then to return to report to most of the people of Israel who are already in captivity in Babylon. Because, you see, they were being told by the false prophets, hey, guys, everything's going to be okay in Jerusalem. Everything's okay there. And don't worry, you guys are going to be going home pretty soon. Ezekiel is going to be able to go back and tell them why God is going to destroy the city and allow judgment to come upon them. And back in chapter 8, we saw that there was enough proof of sin in the life of the people in Jerusalem. And God made that very clear to Ezekiel. We need to see the fact that God judges it's one of the proofs that we have of the living God. We do not get away with our sins. And the very fact of that, again, proves that God exists. God said our sin will find us out. Now the glory of the Lord was above the cherubim, between the cherubim and the holy of holies in the temple. The nation of Israel had had what no other nation had and what the church doesn't have today, which is the visible presence of God. In Romans chapter 9, Paul lists about eight different points of identification that belonged only to the nation of Israel. Eight things that only belonged to Israel that nobody else had. And one of them was God's glory. These people had the Shekinah glory, the visible presence of God, and that's what Ezekiel saw in his vision in the very beginning of the book in chapter 1. But the glory of God started to leave the temple in chapter 9. And here in chapter 10, God is going to continue to depart from the temple. The glory of God moved out from the temple and hovered over it. And now look what it says in verse 10, verses 1 and 2. And I looked, and there in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, notice, there appeared something like a sapphire stone, having the appearance of a likeness of a throne. And then he spoke to the man clothed with linen and said, Go in among the wheels under the cherubim. Fill your hands with coals of fire from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he went in as I watched. So the man in white linen was to scatter these coals off of the altar. The blood of the sacrifice was taken from the altar 
and it was put on the mercy seat. These coals speak of judgment. And the people had refused God's grace. They had refused his mercy and his redemption. Now they were going to have to pay the price of his judgment. It's very simple. God sent his son because he loves you and me. Because he's holy, he had to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin. And he had to die on the cross. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. He is the mercy seat for our sins. And that's the picture when they would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. Jesus is our mercy seat for our sins. It's his blood that was shed for our sins. Not just for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. There is a mercy seat that we can come to, but if we reject it, all we can expect is judgment. Paul said, for if we willfully sin, I'm sorry, yeah, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. Because Jesus took upon himself your judgment and my judgment. And that's the only way God forgives us. It's not because we're nice. It's not because, you know, uh, we, we've done anything. It's not because we serve in the church. You know, it's because we are sinners in rebellion against him. We are sinners in rebellion against him. The best that Christians can say today is that we are good for nothing saved sinners. Bottom line. We're good for nothing saved sinners. There's nothing superior about us at all. We have to come to that realization. Like Paul said in Romans 17, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, this body, nothing good dwells. You're going to have to argue with God about that. If you think you're better or superior. So judgment is now going to come to Jerusalem, the city that's the center of the earth, the apple of God's eye. And we're seeing through Ezekiel's vision here the departure of the glory of God from that city. But eternally, God has a purpose in this city. Look at verses 3 through 8 now. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the, cherub, from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple. And the house was filled with the cloud and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. And, uh, uh, and the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard even in the outer court like the voice of Almighty God when he speaks. Then it happened when he commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, Take fire from among the wheels, from among the cherubim, that he went in and stood beside the wheels. And the cherub stretched out his hand from among the cherubim to the fire that was among the cherubim and took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed with linen, who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a man's hand under the wings. So the Shekinah glory had been confined to the holy place. And the holy place was where these people would approach God. Now the glory leaves the holy place. There between the cherubim and it hovers over the temple to see if the people will return to God. And again it says this hand. And this hand represents God at work in carrying out certain things. 
We read in Psalm 19, when the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork, literally his finger work. The universe is the finger work of God, but God's work in his redemption of man was greater than that in creation. Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 1, who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? He used his bared arm. The only way we can understand the the work of God is to use terms that we're acquainted with. I use my fingers to do certain things. I use my hands to do other things and my arms to do heavier jobs. The greatest thing God has done is to perform the wonderful redemptive act of love at the cross of Christ. That was his bared arm. But when God created the universe, he just used his fingers. Or as John Wesley put it, God created the universe and didn't even half try. I love that. Ezekiel says that the hand of God is moving in judgment. And the most severe part of God's judgment was his absence from his people. That's what's going to make hell, hell. God is not going to be there. Those in hell will be separated from God for all eternity. That's the worst part of the judgment. And even though God was never confined to the temple, God can't be confined to any space. He can't be put in a box. He can't be localized. The temple was where he would make himself known to his people. And now these bodies are the temple of God. He would make himself known to his people and where he would bless them and where he would receive worship from them. Look at verses 9 through 17 now. And when I looked, there were four wheels by the cherubim, one wheel by one cherub and another wheel by each other cherub. The wheels appeared to have the color of of a burl stone. As for their appearance, all four looked alike, as it were a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they went, they went toward any of their four directions. They did not turn aside when they went, but followed in the direction that the head was facing. They did not turn aside when they went, and their whole body with their back, their hands, their wings, and the wheels that the four had were full of eyes all around. As for the wheels, they were called, in my hearing, wheel. Each one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. The second face, the face of a man the third the face of a lion, and the fourth the face of an eagle. And the cherubim were lifted up. This was the living creature I saw by the river Kabar. When the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted their wings to mount up from the earth, the same wheels also did not turn from beside them. Verse 17, when the cherubim stood still, the wheel stood still, and when one was lifted up, the other lifted itself up, for the spirit of the living creature was in them. So these wheels are constantly moving, and they speak of the fact that God is always busy. He never sleeps, he never slumbers. The Lord Jesus said in John 5, 17, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. The Lord Jesus Christ has been very busy on our behalf ever since he went back to heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father. God has never had to come back to pick up something he's forgotten. God doesn't need to deviate from one side to the other. He never detours. He goes straight forward today towards accomplishing his purposes 
in the world. All of this is very symbolic. And it appears to have the messages of the four Gospels here in this passage. In verse 14, notice he says, The face of the eagle is seen there. This, is picture, this picture is the deity of Christ, the most majestic bird in the sky. That's John's Gospel. In verse 15, it says, in verse 14, it says, The face of the lion. This is pictured of his kingship, the kingship of Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's Matthew's Gospel. And in verse 14, again, it says the face of the man is pictured uh, in the face of the man is pictured the humanity of Christ. He was all man. That's Luke's gospel. And then last in verse 14, we have the face of the cherub. Sometimes it's the ox. This pictures the servanthood of Christ. That's Mark's gospel. He shed his blood so that you and I might have eternal life. He made a mercy seat. He made a mercy seat. He was the mercy seat. In the temple, the cherubim looked down upon the blood of the sacrifice. Verses 18 through 22. Then the glory of the Lord was departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of God of Israel was above them. This is the living creature I saw under the God of Israel by the river Kabar, and I knew they were cherubim. Each one had four faces, and each one four wings, and the likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings. And the likeness of their faces was the same as the faces which I had seen by the river Kabar, their appearance and their persons. They each went straight forward. So God's glory departed from the temple. And was never totally present again until Jesus Christ himself visited in the New Testament times. God's holiness required that he leave the temple because the people had defiled it so badly. You see, holiness and unholiness can't dwell together. You know, darkness and light can't dwell together. Sin, you know, know, he's a holy God. He can't dwell with the defiled. God had to totally destroy what the people had perverted in order for true worship to be revived. The people had, had, you know, made that, had defiled the temple so badly. We have to commit ourselves, our families, our churches, and our nation to follow God faithfully so that we never have to experience God abandoning us. The presence of God's glory In the camp was a special sign that the Israelites were the people of God. But now the glory had departed and God's special favor was gone. When King Solomon dedicated the temple, the glory of God returned in 1 Kings chapter 8. But before the destruction of Jerusalem, Ezekiel saw the glory leave the temple and the city. Ezekiel also saw the future millennial temple and the return of glory of God in Ezekiel chapter 43 later on. And the glory of God didn't return to this earth until Jesus was born, the Savior of the world. And today God's glory dwells in His people individually, as I said a minute ago. We are the temple of God. And it dwells in His church together. In closing... Ezekiel was learning that the most important part of the nation's life was to magnify, to magnify the glory of God. 
The presence of God in the sanctuary was a great privilege for the people of Israel. But it was also a great responsibility. And the glory of God cannot dwell with the sins of God's people. That's why it was necessary for the glory to live, to leave. And the sanctuary and the people had to be judged. And Paul said, remember, whatever we do, whether we eat, drink, sleep, whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. Father, we thank you again for your word. Father, may this be a warning to us, Father. Lord, that sin and righteousness cannot dwell together in the same heart. You will not share your throne with another. Father, may we take this to heart. Once again, Lord, would we receive the mark of protection if you were to be marking us today, Lord? It's something to, to strongly consider, Lord. To get right with you, Lord. To get right so that we don't get left behind, Lord. So, Father, may our hearts be laid out bare before you, Lord. As, as the psalmist said, search our hearts, God. Search my heart and show me my thoughts, my anxieties, any wicked way in me. And lead me, Lord, in the way everlasting, God. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, who, Lord, who convicts sin, but he will also bring judgment if we don't repent. So, Lord, just, again, have your way with us, Lord. Stir us up, God. Let us not be complacent. Let us not get lazy, God. But, Lord, may we get fired up because we're seeing, Father, those things come to pass, Lord. May it excite us, stir us up, Lord. May we get fired up to tell others, Lord, why we see the things happening in our world today the calamities, the catastrophes, Father. All the things that are going on, Lord. Never before have we seen this. So, Father, we thank you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sunday morning.